Welcome to the Faith Dialogue Podcast with your host, Pastor Ken Baer. Are you ready to swim in the deep end of the Bible pool or climb to the top of Faith Mountain? If so, open the eyes that see, those ears that hear, and a heart that is receptive. Get your cup of coffee and your Bible as we begin. One of the pastors at Celebrate Seniors, a ministry of faith dialogue right here in Celebration, Florida. Uh, welcome to our weekly study in the parables of Jesus. Um, these parables are our stories that, that Jesus told. They're stories with interesting, intriguing, and often surprising twists. The parable today that we'll be looking at is the parable of the wedding feast. Uh, Jesus told his disciples. Uh, when they asked him why he spoke so often in parables, he said that uh, he told the parables so that his disciples, and that includes people like you and me, that his disciples would know and understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Uh, but to others, they would be, they would be hidden. Uh, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now, the parable today is part of a series of, of parables uh, that Jesus told near the end of his, his earthly ministry. And they address the, the events and are related to what we know as the second coming of Jesus or the end of days. Uh, it's referenced in, in a number of Old Testament prophecies as well as the New Testament, including the, the book of Revelation. And in fact, many people are surprised to hear uh, that for every one of the Old Testament prophecies that spoke about the coming of the Messiah, and you know many of them, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be conceived, that a, that a virgin would conceive, uh, that he would be called out of Egypt, uh, that he would be buried in a, a rich man's grave. For every one of the Old Testament prophecies that spoke of the uh, coming, the first coming, the first advent, uh, of Jesus, there are eight references in the Bible of his second coming. In fact, all told, um, in the New and Old Testament, there are 1,800 separate references in the Bible of the second coming, of the end of days. Now, while this parable stands alone, it's a, it's meaning it's a, it's a complete story. You can read it from beginning to end and, and benefit from it. The broader context of this parable is not only the end times, but the context is the, the Jewish marriage ceremony or the marriage process between a, a Jewish man and a, and a young lady. And understanding that the context of, of how a man and a woman would, would come together in, in marriage at the time of Jesus. This is the context of this, of this parable. The parable is aptly named, it's, it's about a, a wedding feast. Today we'll all be likely familiar with some of the elements in the parable because we still understand a wedding feast, what we call today a, a wedding reception. Uh, the wedding is the, uh, the official event. I mean, today a wedding is often held in a, in a church, uh, but more and more common it's, it's held outside of the church, sometimes outside. I've done a number of weddings on the beach. <laughs> Here it is in Florida where we do beach weddings. Uh, they are free, which is, which is a great way to do a wedding. Um, but more and more these, these, these wedding ceremonies are, are the small piece. The actual reception is the main event. The, this is where people get together, there's lots of food, there's lots of things to drink, uh, there's music and, and dancing. 
at the time of Jesus, and that Jesus is telling this parable, weddings were a little different than today. We'll see some of the things that are common in today's, today's weddings, uh, especially the wedding feast. Uh, the wedding feast that we recognize in this parable is actually the third and the final step in the, in the wedding process that a, a Jewish boy and a Jewish girl would go through in order to be, to be married. Um, the, the, this, the first step is actually what's known as the betrothal. Um, we see this in the Bible where Joseph and Mary were betrothed. However, all three steps have, have direct applications. Uh, back in the time of Jesus, all three steps were important, and all three of those steps we'll see today have important implications uh, for the believer today. So let me read the parable to you in its entirety, and then we'll come back to these three steps of a Jewish marriage covenant in ancient Israel, and then we'll, we'll unpack the meaning of the parable at the same time. So let me read the parable to you. It's in Matthew uh, chapter 22, uh, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus answered and spoke to them, again by parables, and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he set out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you will find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Verse 11, But when the king came in to see the guest, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into utter darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. In this, in this wedding feast today, in this parable, this story, Jesus is talking about the, what we know as the wedding reception. Note that the parable speaks about invitations going out, and, and some that had initially had said yes had declined to come. You know, even today, that would be a very disappointing development, wouldn't it? Uh, for a couple uh, trying to have a wedding, uh, for those people that said yes to decide not to come. You know, you send out 100 invitations, you figure that maybe 75 will come and that 150 to $250 a plate. And you know, I haven't hosted a wedding in a long time. Um, it's the price is probably double that. Um, but, but they respond. You know, some respond and they, they check the box and they said, I'll have the chicken. And somebody else responds and they check the box and they say, I'll have the fish. 
and you're expecting them to come because you want them to, to come, family and friends, to come and, and celebrate with you the, the, the marriage of your son or daughter. Uh, you're, you're hoping that they will come and celebrate with you. Uh, but the king is finding that many of the people are, are declining the invitation. And he's rightfully upset. Um, a lot of people had checked the box chicken, and there's lots of chicken, and nobody's coming. They, they checked the box fish, and, and, and they're not coming. They decide at the last minute to decline the invitation that they had earlier accepted. So you get the general idea of the parable. Uh, we can relate because we understand the custom. And even 2,000 years later, it hasn't changed all that much. So let me spend a little time, however, because I mentioned that this wedding reception that Jesus is talking about today is actually the third part of the marriage process that begin, begun, be, begins with uh, betrothal. So I want to kind of go through that with you to get a better understanding of, of this parable. The first stage, as I said, was the betrothal. Uh, this is, in essence, a, a marriage contract between the bridegroom and the bride. It's actually what's called a, a covenant. While we could say that marriages were arranged 2,000 years ago, and we wouldn't be wrong, our idea of arranged marriage is somewhat jaded. Actually, what we understand from historians is that often there was a, an affection, a, a known um, affection between the man and the woman. However, the families were definitely in charge. Um, typically, the two families, the parents of the young people would meet or get together and find out if they, there was actually an interest uh, in the two, of the two, uh, the two young people uh, getting married. Often it was because to, to advance the, the family's interests. Uh, but at the same time, they wanted to make sure that the bride and the groom would be able to, to get together. Uh, it was typically the father of the bridegroom that would propose uh, a marriage contract, sometimes in person or often sending uh, a servant to be able to represent the family. The proposal would be made by the father of the bridegroom uh, on behalf of his son to the parents of the bride. The bride's dowry uh, was never considered to be the payment for a bride. The, the, the bride's dowry was an, uh, uh, an expression of her worth. Um, historians tell us that often the dowry was set aside. It was kind of like an insurance policy. If for any reason the bridegroom was unable to, to provide for the bride, that dowry was there kind of as an, an insurance policy, as a kind of a savings plan. The marriage proposal would culminate in the actual betrothal where the bridegroom would take a cup of wine, he would drink from it and offer it to the, to the bride. If she drinks from the cup, the idea is that she is consenting to the betrothal. Uh, since this is, the, this is the first cup that they'll actually ceremonially share in this three-step process. Uh, by this time, the for formal marriage contract has been actually written out. Uh, like I said, it becomes a, a covenant, and it's agreed to not only by the bridegroom and the bride, but also by the, by the families. Uh, the bride would be the one that would actually have to agree to the marriage, uh, marriage contract or marriage covenant, and she would do that again by drinking from this cup of wine that was handed to her. The, the, betrothal, um, and, uh, the betrothal in Israel was definitely, 2,000 years ago, was definitely a, a covenant, meaning it was a promise 
of things that each party in the covenant would provide. Um, in this first stage of the, of the Jewish marriage, the bridegroom and the bride would actually sign this covenant. And the covenant was actually called a, a new covenant. Does that sound familiar? A new covenant between the bridegroom and the bride. In this new covenant, the bridegroom uh, would accept certain responsibilities, such as providing a, a place for the bride and groom to live, providing a home. This would include all the furnishings, all of the necessary tables and chairs, and even the, the eating utensils. Um, all, everything that would be needed for, for the family. The bride, would, in, in her part, would also covenant to, to care, to care not only for her the bridegroom, her husband, but also for the children and to obey the husband and to be able to bring the children up and instruct them in the, the religious law of Israel. If everything was as expected, the bride, again, would drink the, cup, the wine from the common cup that was presented and both the bride and the um, bride and bridegroom, as well as all the witnesses and family, would sign this, this agreement, this, this covenant. This would be the end of the first stage, the betrothal. Um, the next stage would start, and that stage is called the preparation stage. Today we would call it the engagement period, but 2,000 years ago it was quite different from what we understand an engagement period to be today. 2,000 years ago after the betrothal, from the to that time on, the bride and groom would not see each other. Uh, the bride would be consecrated. She would be set apart. She would go back to her father's house, her parents' house, and she would stay there. Now, while the couple is betrothed, they are, they are legal. Uh, they're considered a, a couple. It, it's, it's the beginning part of a marriage, um, and they could not separate uh, without an actual writ of divorce. Uh, we know this also from the story in the New Testament of Joseph and Mary. Mary and Joseph were betrothed. They had signed a marriage covenant. And when Mary was found to be with child, that of course is surprising and also quite scandalous. That is why Joseph had decided to secretly put her away, to give her a writ of divorce. It was the angel Gabriel that came to Joseph and said to take Mary as his wife. The angel Gabriel said, because what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so this is the second phase, the preparation stage, also um, uh, called the, uh, the, the preparation stage uh, where the, the, the groom is preparing a place for the bride and the bride is also preparing as well. Uh, the bridegroom returns back to his father's house where he'll remain again apart from the bride for typically 12 months or even longer. This is a period of separation. Uh, as well as pre preparation. Uh, this, this interval of 12 months actually allows uh, for the time for the bridegroom to prepare a place for the bride, uh, a place in his father's house. Uh, this custom actually remains popular to this day in, in many parts of the country and in many families. It's not unusual for when the eldest son is, is ready to marry, the first thing that he starts doing is he starts adding on to his, his father's house. You know, a new room addition goes on, a, a second room, a new bathroom, an opportunity for the bride and groom, once they're married, to be able to live together in their father's, in his father's house. We, we, we heard something similar to this when Jesus spoke of his departure with his disciples. Uh, he said in, in John 14, he says this, 
Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Then he says, there are many dwelling places in my Father's house. Otherwise, I, I would have told you. I'm going away to make ready a place for you. And if I go and make ready a place for you, I will come again and take you to be with me so that where I am, you may be also. Notice Jesus say, where I am, you may be also, not where you are, I'll come and stay. You know, during this time, the bride who, who won't see her bridegroom, probably for the entire year, she's away at her, her father's house herself, preparing, um, uh, preparing um, uh, for the marriage. Uh, during this time, she'll call together some of her, her closest friends, those that will become the, uh, the attendants, um, the bridesmaids. Uh, together, they'll purchase some, some fine, fine cloth and the materials that they need for the, the wedding garment. Uh, together, they'll, they'll wait to hear the sound that the bridegroom cometh. The bride and the bridegroom sometimes would wait for a, a, for a very long time, sometimes much more than a year. This is especially true for arranged marriages when the young woman is still not of age. They would have to wait until the young lady is of age and then that's when the next part of the marriage ceremony would take place. Uh, um, this preparation phase or engagement phase therefore could last actually much longer than a year. However, the length of time was actually specified by the father. Not the bridegroom, not the family, but the father. Neither the bridegroom nor anyone but the father, listen to this, knew the day or hour that the bridegroom would return. That must sound familiar to you. This is why the bride and her attendants or bridesmaids, sometimes called virgins in the Bible, um, needed to be ready. Uh, they would have the beautiful wedding gowns, their lamps would be filled with oil uh, because the bridegroom could come back at, at any moment. They never knew when the bridegroom was actually going to return. And it was often during the night. When the bridegroom's preparation were complete, he would turn to his father and let him know that everything was ready. However, it was the father that would decide exactly when the bridegroom could go and get his bride. Uh, it wasn't until that time that the father said that the bridegroom was able to go and actually fetch his bride. Historians tell us that the wedding procession would begin at the father's house with the bridegroom and his male attendants leading the way and the bridegroom would have a, uh, a ram's horn, what's known as a shofar, and the, and the, the, the bride, uh, the, uh, the attendants, uh, the, the uh, male attendants would, would come along with him carrying lamps again because often it was in the middle of the night. And the bride, again, would not know the, the day or the hour of her husband-to-be's return. So the bridegroom's arrival was announced by the, a call, a call and a blast on the shofar uh, so that the bride and her attendants had a little bit of forewarning. Often the bridegroom would be coming from the, the next town. Um, now actually back in ancient Israel at the time that Jesus is, is telling this story, uh, towns are actually very, very small villages, sometimes no more than 20 to 50 homes, and sometimes the two villages, so-called, would be no more than a mile or two miles apart. Um, so the wedding procession would start typically in one village where the, where the 
uh, where the bridegroom's father was, and they would go and get the bride. Uh, as the pr pr procession progressed, many of the villagers would wake up and join in the procession because typically all of the villagers would be invited as well. There was going to be a wedding, and it was going to be the, the big event of the year uh, to be able to go to the wedding and to be able to, to celebrate. Meanwhile, the bride and her attendants were unaware that the bridegroom was coming until they hear the shofar and the call of the bridegroom. Then the bride quickly awakens, and together with her bridesmaids, those attendants and virgins, they rush out to meet the bridegroom. In another parable, it is said that the bride and her attendants trim their lamps and ensure that they have uh, enough oil. You probably remember that parable as well. The bride has prepared herself for her coming. She is, she is ready. Uh, as the procession with the bridegroom and the lead draws close to the house, they, the, 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 shout is heard, the shout is heard, the bridegroom cometh, if you're reading the New King James, the King James, the bridegroom comes, or the bridegroom cometh. And the bride and all her attendants depart with the groom, and they return, um, they return to the father's house. As you know, I'm a student of history. And I've loved researching this parable and the ancient Jewish ceremonies. And I found some really interesting correlates, uh, correlation between some of the ceremonies, some of the rites of the ancient Jewish uh, wedding ceremony and what we expect uh, and what the Bible talks about. Um, especially how the bride was symbolically carried back to the father's house. When the bride and the groom arrive at the father's house, uh, the nuptials uh, or the ceremony would begin. The Hebrew word for marriage is nasuin, uh, which comes from the word nosh, which means to, to carry. According to historians, and this is where I get excited, according to historians, the research that I did, uh, the, the reason for this word uh, to carry was ended up being the word for marriage is because the townspeople would pick up the bride and they would carry her, part way at least, to the father's house. Today, even today, if you've been to a, to a Jewish wedding, you are probably familiar with what's called the, the chair dance. That said that many say goes all the way back to this Jewish custom of carrying the bride. Here's an example I just picked up on, on YouTube. I, I wasn't invited to this wedding. I wish I was. It looks like a lot of fun. But here's the, here's the chair dance on the, wedding, on the video. Well, that video was fun. If you think that was interesting, here's another little tidbit you might like. The tradition of hosting, hoisting the bride up on a chair on a, or on a litter and carrying her to her father's house uh, in ancient times was called flying the bride. You get that? Flying the bride. A very interesting correlation to what the, what the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians. When Jesus says, uh, when Jesus says that our, our, or when uh, the Apostle Paul says that when Jesus, our bridegroom, returns, we, the bride of Christ, will meet him in the air. Uh, perhaps you're familiar with the old gospel song, I'll fly away. Okay, uh, so stay with me now as we're in the, the third phase, the reception, the marriage feast. This is the third phase of this, of this, this, 
this marriage process. The first, start, the first part started over a year ago uh, when the bride and the bridegroom signed a marriage covenant and they were betrothed. Uh, then the next phase was the preparation phase where the bridegroom returned to his father's house and prepared a place for the bride to live. Now we're in the third phase and the father says, go get your bride. And the shofar sounds and the call goes out, the bridegroom cometh. And the bride is carried back to the father's house. We're told that one of the required rituals in this third phase, this beginning of this third phase of this, of this wedding feast, would be for the bride to have a ritual purification bath. Um, she is to be presented to the bridegroom uh, pure, holy, and as the Bible says, without spot or wrinkle. Um, the purification bath in the Jewish culture is called a, a mikvah. It's the ritual of immersion that's used even to this, to this day. A mikvah is the same word uh, that we have as baptism. It means to, to immerse. In, in the early church, baptism was done typically by, by full immersion, following the Jewish custom where the candidates for baptism would often wear white ceremonial robes, similar to in actually fashion after a bride's uh, white bridal garment. Isn't that interesting? Uh, we're just about done with this, this ancient rite, this, the, this third of the three stages of a, of a Jewish wedding process. It concludes with the, with the wedding banquet. And this is basically what this, this parable is talking about, where all of the invited guests come to this, this amazing feast that is put on by the, the father of the bridegroom. One of the required rites uh, at this stage was the ceremonial second cup of wine. This second cup of wine is shared from a common cup. Again, the, the bridegroom drinks from the cup and hands it to the, the bride. This is the second cup as the first cup of wine was actually presented to the, to the bride um, at the beginning, the very first phase of this wedding process. Do you remember the words at the Last Supper? We, we say them every time we have communion in church. Jesus was about to return to his father's house and, and he shared a cup, we call it the communion cup, with his disciples. And he said, and I say to you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it anew in my Father's kingdom. That's out of Matthew chapter 26. After the cup is shared and the, and the bride retires to the bridal chamber, the festivities are in full swing. And they actually continue for seven days. I've been to some weddings that go a long time, but seven days is a, is a really long time. When I was in, when I was in Mexico, uh, the weddings were, were much more extravagant. It doesn't matter whether you were, were rich or poor, uh, the weddings were the, the main event. Uh, if you were wealthy, you could have it at a country club or a reception place. If you were relatively poor, you'd have it in the streets. And they would last more than a day, a whole day. They'd actually have a breakfast toast for the wedding. But in Israel, it was, it was seven days. Now, what's interesting is the bride goes into the, the nuptial suite, okay? And the bride disappears for the entire seventh day, seven days and doesn't reappear until after the wedding feast is over. I find that very interesting. In, in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 9. Let me read it to you. This is what it says. It says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory, 
for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his wife, that's the bride of Christ, has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Uh, then he said to me, this is in the, in the book of Revelation, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these things are true sayings of God. What an amazing correlation, isn't it? Between the ancient marriage ceremony, the three processes of the marriage ceremony, and, and what the Bible speaks about uh, when the church is called the, the bride of Christ. Interestingly, the most ideal time for Christ's return for his bride, the church, and meet her in the air is just the beginning of what we know as the seven years of tribulation. Uh, this, this seven years of tribulation concludes with Jesus coming back with his church, with his church, and the establishment of a thousand year reign of Christ. The church, the bride of Christ, is to be hidden for seven years. It, it's referenced in Isaiah chapter 26 verse 20 where Isaiah says, Go my people, enter your rooms and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself a little while until the wrath is past. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. So let's return to the parable today and we'll answer a, a couple of the questions that most likely arise anytime you read this parable um, and we'll try to answer these questions now with our, with our new understanding of the marriage process, the three-stage process. Uh, we'll, we'll be able to get to these, to these answers pretty quickly. The parable begins, if you remember, with, a, with a, the idea of a call. The king is ready for the wedding feast and he sends out his servants to call those to the feast. Uh, the word call in, in Hebrew is kaleo, in Greek, I'm sorry, kaleo, and it occurs five times, five times in this parable, in the first nine verses. Uh, the calling of a person is exactly the same word as somebody that's been invited. The parable continues and clearly demonstrates that while some had initially um, agreed or affirmed that they were going to come to the wedding, they're now going back on their, their earlier statement. They initially had said yes, but now they say, they say no. This is similar to the parables just prior to this one with the, the disobedient son. Remember there were two sons. One said yes, but actually didn't go, and the one said no and actually did go. Also the parable we read of the wicked tenant farmers called the, the wicked vine dressers. Same type of thing. The vine dressers were supposed to be able to produce the, the, the harvest and, and give it to the king, the landowner, uh, but they decided they were going to keep it for themselves and ended up killing the heir, the son of the king. It says that they seized the king's servants, they treated them spitefully and killed them. This is exactly what this parable is talking about. Well, the king then decides in our parable that he's going to call those that typically weren't initially invited. He, he tells the servants to go out to the highways and find the good and the bad and invite them all because the wedding feast is, is ready. You know, Jesus was criticized because he often hung out with the good and the bad. He hung out with the tax collectors and the lepers and even the prostitutes. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul 
remarked about the early church that many were not wise by human standards nor powerful powerful nor of noble birth he said that God chose the foolish of the world in order to shame the strong uh, of course in this parable we see something else the king actually kills all the people that had refused to come to the wedding you know finally there's a reference to to something that many people find difficult and that is that the king discovers someone at the wedding feast that, that does not have a wedding garment. In verse 12 it says, friend, how did you get in here? How did you get in here, into the wedding feast, without a wedding garment? Often the biggest question in this parable is to explain the meaning of this saying. What is this wedding garment and how did he get in there without the wedding garment? Um, those that had earlier refused are the people who should have inherited the kingdom. That's generally agreed. These are the people that should have been there, but they, they refused. They were the chosen sons of the kingdom. Afterwards, some others, some of the bad, uh, mingled in with them and got included in those that came into the garden. The scripture gives us a clue of those persons that had mingled in with them that didn't have a wedding garment. And in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, uh, that comes to mind when Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, Jesus gave a couple illustrations also that, that probably give us an idea of who these people are. The, in the parable of the tares and the wheat, which is in Matthew 13, the servants noticed that the enemy had sown tares, which looks like wheat, but it's non-productive. There's no fruit from the tares. They noticed that some enemy had sown tares in with the wheat, and they asked the landowner uh, what they should do. Should they, should they pull the tares out by the roots? And the landowner says, no, don't do that, because by pulling out the tares, they could actually damage the wheat. He said, let them grow together until the end and then we'll gather up the wheat and we'll gather up the tares and we'll throw the tares into the fire. The question remains, however, what is the garment that's spoken of in this, in this, in this parable? Uh, the best illustration I have found is actually comes from the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. And I selected this passage because not only does it speak about a garment, but also in the context is of a wedding. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. He has clothed me. There you go. He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adorns himself with ornaments. You know, it, it is God that's given us these, these garments that are needed. It's the garments of salvation. It's the robe of righteousness. Uh, the Bible says these are God's gifts. It's always God who provides salvation for us. Nobody earns salvation. God freely gives it. Notice how the king said, how did you get in here without the wedding garment? You know, obviously, and most scholars believe, it was something was going on where every guest was given a wedding garment. It was provided free by the host. In our walk with the Lord, our daily walk, the garments that are needed are free. God is the one that, that clothes us. The wedding banquet is given by the Father to honor His Son and the bride. Uh, this man without the garments was just an imposter. 
he, he was willing to eat and to drink and to make merry, but he had no love for the bride or groom. Uh, he, had, he had no love at all uh, for the father. He was without his garment. He had the opportunity to put on the garment of praise, on the robe of righteousness, the garment of salvation. But he was no better than those that, that were invited but had declined. Um, he refused to comply with a, a simple request to be able to put on the wedding garment. So he was unworthy, not because of what he did, but because of what he didn't do. He failed to respond to the free gift, the free gift to be clothed with the garments of salvation, to be covered with this, with this robe of righteousness. Hope you enjoyed the parable. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to get together. You've been listening to Faith Dialogue with Pastor Ken Baer, recorded live at Celebrate Seniors, a ministry of Faith Dialogue. You can listen to or watch all of the recordings at Faith Dialogue by going to www.faithdialogue.org.